Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hey, and welcome back to part two with Joe Wadsack. Now, last week's episode, you already heard just a smidgen of his CV. But, you know, if he's got you excited with all of his crazy, ridiculous stories, but articulate way to describe wine, you can also check him out on BBC TV's Food and Drink, where he, in series three, is the drinks expert alongside two Michelin star chef Tom Kerridge. Now you know that this episode is taking you to mainland Portugal and we will be starting right in the north in Vino Verde which accounts for about a seventh of the wine harvest of Portugal and with about 1,600 millimetres of rain a year which typically is in the winter and spring this region is not what you would typically think of when thinking about visiting the Algarve in the south and having your summer holidays but it does mean it produces incredibly fresh white wines. Now there are several white grape varieties growing there so we're going to touch on a few of them. Then we're going to move further down south below the Douro region which of course is the most famous wine region in Portugal and you have Barrada. This is between Lisbon and Oporto. East of Barrada is Dao. Now, these are fresh wines with an Atlantic influence. There is a main red grape variety, which you're going to learn all about, and a few whites. They make sparklings. There is one man that has put this region on the map, so you're going to learn all about that. And then, to keep you all sweet, we're going to talk about an incredibly delicious fortified dessert wine that is incredible value from the peninsula de Stubal, which is just south of Lisbon. And then, if you make it through to the end, you'll also learn how Joe decided to shoot a hole in the wall of a winery in South Africa. Yes, absolute true story you can google it but you'll hear it from his own mouth so i hope you enjoy this episode grab yourself a glass snuggle up and enjoy hmm. now you've literally been everywhere in portugal almost almost not everywhere kind, kind of almost. yeah yeah the only places i haven't been really are the tourist traps because that doesn't interest me really so i've not been to the algarve <laughs> well sometimes we need a little bit of beach time however yeah i think so, I think so. let's go to the opposite end let's go to the far north now i want you yes. to talk to me about vino verde so funny enough we finished talking about madeira which is a yeah. pretty green island but let's go over to vino verde which is so green the wine yeah. the typical way of the wine <laughs> is almost green hence verde yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. also it is very very green because it's it rains a lot and it's wet and it's the most yeah. good climate of Portugal. So what was it like when you went there? I went out of season 
So it wasn't particularly warm, but it, but it was sunny and bright. Okay. I think I went there. I think I went there in like kind of November, and I was expected to be very wet. But actually, that's not a wet season in Portugal. Um, I... So we had really nice weather. I, it was a jumper in the morning. I still sat outside and had breakfast on the terrace just because I could, and it was raining in England. Um, but, um, <laughs> just you got to show off, don't you, when you can? And, and you've got you've got these two towns um, in in that area, which I think are most revered for their wines, which is Monsau and Minhau. Yeah, right in the north, on the, on the on the river Minhau. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, if you go to um, Ponte de Lima or the Monsal Cooperative where a load of white wine is made not just for the local region but the whole of Portugal to enjoy just as a crisp seafood wine you get some of the best value white wine in the whole of Europe no mistake mm. absolutely mm. Um, I, and I think the improvements have been made over the 20 years that I've been drinking it have been astonishing. I mean, there was a time when there wasn't many good wines, but now they're almost, it's hard to find a bad one. Right, because everything before, if we go back a few decades, was kind of like yeah. 9%, 10% alcohol, the white. They would tend to have a bit of sugar in. They would always have that spritz. But now uh, yeah. we, we are getting far more serious vino verdes, aren't we? Yeah, with, with a bit more booze, exactly. A bit more yeah. alcohol, a bit more weight. And, and, and I think there are those one or two which are most spoken about, but are the least typical, right? So you've got things like Sualiero, which is a wonderful producer, making wines around the 20, 22 pound mark. Um, yeah. And th- their wines are 100% Alvarino. Uh, they taste all the world like a super premium Rias Baixas from just north of there in Spain, uh, where, where um, Alvarino is king. I think Alvarino, you can't get a more fashionable grape variety than Alvarino, can you? I, mean, I think every restaurant needs to sell one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they're super, and, but I but I am hopelessly addicted to the grape variety. I think it tastes of lovely of apricots, um, flat peaches, stone fruits, nectarines, which I love in my wines. Real tingly, sour, sweet fruits with wonderful acidity. Yeah, of course. lovely acidity and a nice undertone, almost like licking a marble t- like kitchen top. There's this yeah, kind there of is something inside in that like, mineral salinity yeah. that often comes as well. Totally, Just totally. and we should point out Alberino, Alberino. Yeah. is the Spanish yeah. name and yeah. Alvarinho Alvarinho yeah. with a V is the Portuguese yeah. name so for anyone who had any doubt they are the same grape variety and, absolutely and you've already min- mentioned the the Mino River literally that Mino River yeah. stop yeah. separates Portugal from Spain from, and absolutely yeah you know so there's very similar and, and the, other, the other thing is when you see the actual spelling on, on paper, so one has a V and instead of an N with a squiggle over it, it's got an N-H. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, what's it's interesting so is in, in, in Spain, the V and the B are the same. They, they are exactly the same letter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pronounced the same way. So exactly. Alvarin, and so you always pronounce the B almost like you're sort of bubbling a bit of spit. So, <laughs> so, 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 so Alvarin, Alvarino is pronounced exactly the same way both in Spanish and as in, as in Portuguese, the way they're spelt. That's the, like, they, they both have the same phonetic definition, mm-hmm. so they just look different. Um, but um, there are other great varieties which are of great repute, I think, in Vignavir. The next one that I think is very, very important is Laureru. And Laureru is a, a very floral beautiful variety which i think is made usually in a slightly more traditional lighter spritzier sharper way yeah. uh, but you often get laureru and alvinia blend together and that's kind of like for me that's the mother load that's the perfect well yeah wine. because um, Loreto has that lovely kind of lime blossom and it has a, a slight yes, edge but still maybe nectarines and and of course beautifully fresh right um, super delicious yeah and that tends to come Absolutely. from more of the the best examples come from the middle of the Vino Verde, right? In a Lima region, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah, 
Yeah, and Lima is where the best sun sites are. They're, they're slightly t- angled towards the sun. The soils are a little bit more granitic, so they produce much mm. purer wine. Yeah, and yeah. and the, the, other, the other thing is, I always ask about Vineyard Vineyard, why it's called Vineyard Vineyard. And somebody once said to me, although I've never seen it written in books, although it makes so much sense, I'm inclined to believe it, is that the reason why Vineyard Vineyard is called Vineyard Vineyard is because it doesn't go through malolactic fermentation. Now, let's slow that down a bit. When a wine goes, when a wine is fermented, the sugar turns to alcohol, obviously. The -hmm. alcoholic fermentation is a very complex biological action. There's 74 steps between sugar and alcohol. 74? But then after, there's 74 steps. So then then you go from, but then you've got the malolactic conversion, Mm -hmm. which is a simpler uh, chemical equation, but a more complicated thing because it's it's enacted by bacteria. And that is that you get two malic acid molecules, which are apoly acids, and they're put together to create a lactic acid molecule. And the byproduct is one molecule of water and one molecule of alcohol. Okay, I can definitely tell that you've done a chemistry degree. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so what happens is, is the wine ends up tasting softer, but it also goes up in alcohol as well. Mm. So the thing about um, Vineyard is that Vineyard, to my knowledge, in the old days I didn't check, but it never goes through malolactic. And that's the reason why it's called Vineyard well, That's how somebody said to me, that it's called Vineyard not because the wines are green, but it's because the wines have malic acid in not lactic acid and, and i said why would you say that why i mean they said well because when people came on package holidays from england from all over the world in fact germany whatever sweden for the first time in the 70s they'd all sit around a table the tour operator would come and go right girls right we've got a few nice trips you can book yourselves on that's tracy if you'd like to go on the coach um mm-hmm. now everyone's going to have a nice traditional local glass of local wine all right everyone, so we're going to pour you a nice glass of wine and they would always serve you vineyard but a red one and red vineyard is the nastiest wine in the world. It's not now. I mean, it's still not yeah, anything but, but to at, really at, sing and shout no, yeah. about. At the same time, Vineyard made from red grapes does not go through malolactic. And that's why it's such a tricky wine to drink. It's ah, like chewing on hazel sticks. Yeah, it's like choosing on, chewing on like, like wood, sappy wood sticks. It's like, ah, the tannins are green and sour. Um, mm. And uh, for anybody who's ever been in a winery, there's been a stuck mallow, for example. It, it happens a lot in places like Beaujolais. And the wines are slightly fizzy because it's created some gas from the malolactic, but the wines taste incredibly hard. That's because they haven't completed the malolactic. And for those people listening, red wines with almost the only exception the only exception in the world literally of vineyard veered reds all red wines in the world complete that step yes. before you drink mm. them so that's why it's called vineyard Veard. that's why i was told anyway so I, i'm not that, sure if that's know, true well that kind of makes sense now i just found out and literally on the last yeah. episode of season two i was chatting yeah. with our winemaker in England and so yeah. I thought that malolactic fermentation and how they teach you in all the diploma books and winemaking books is it's of course it's a bacterial fermentation and it's natural and it just happens and it's more about the producers of the world actually have to stop it happening if they yes. want to either by chilling it down to a different to a lower yeah, yeah. temperature or by sulfur however yeah. in England our pH levels are so low our acidity yeah. is so high that yeah. actually you very often have to encourage malolactic yeah. fermentation to happen by adding yeah, I don't know anyone who doesn't inoculate. You have to start it artificially in this country. So I found that fascinating because I didn't know that. I've just learned that. So actually, yeah. when we think about 
Vino Verde, the region, the province of Mino, I guess, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely it's definitely a lot warmer, but the yeah. acidity levels are much higher, it's fresher, so maybe yeah. as well with their pH might be quite low as yeah. well. Yeah, Janina, I think I think you can get pHs as low as 3.1, which is still oh, very listen, low. Oh, listen, if, if you're, that's exactly the pH of England then. So, 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 um, so, uh, so if, especially if you look at great varieties like Arinto or Laurero, uh, these, these are very, very sharp varieties. And it's mm, not necessarily mm. the to say, but also the one thing that you do need when the malolactic happens is you do need to have a degree of warmth. You only need to warm up the cellar by using heaters, but to get the whole, to get the critical mass going, if you put it in a cold cellar and you buy the sea, that part of the sea in the cost of air day, let's say around November, December time. Well, that's going to be about eight degrees, eight degrees in the winter. Yeah, it's going to be pretty much impossible to get a mallow started <laughs> without artificial heat. So, so I think that maybe that's, that's very, very much yeah. the case. Oh, look yeah, at us. Absolutely. Look at oh, well, look what you've just brought to this podcast. That's, like, that's super interesting. No, well, everyone's like, uh, can you stop geeking out now? Um, okay, moving back on. But that is fascinating, actually. Yeah. The more time I spend in Portugal, the more I love the country. I, it was really funny that of all the countries in Europe, somehow I was like, you know, Spain had this kind of vivid, lots of things to explore, lots of crazy history that we know about, that we don't know about Portugal. Um, and Italy obviously has, it's just a, just, a, just a collection of most incredible architecture and art and wine mm-hmm. and everything. And somehow Portugal always seemed to be like kind of like the slightly less interesting cousin and even now having gone back there on wine trips and explored different wine regions i find it hard to explain to someone else why it's as good as either of those countries but it just is and i think one of the reasons why is that the language although it looks a little bit spanish is actually very french it's, it's got the same mm. construct as french you just have to know, know what how to pronounce certain weird uh, collections of letters but the, the sense of humor of portugal is very english and I think that's the reason why we get on, because my friends in Portugal all have fantastically dry sense of humour. <laughs> it's very easy to giggle across a room with Portuguese people, where Spanish people are going, <laughs> que, que, what do you say? You know, they, they don't <laughs> they, the Portuguese understand sarcasm. They're like no other country in the world apart from the English. And, uh, oh, how and very interesting. I just love the relationships I have with the people I've met. And... Um, they tend to be quite a studious bunch. I think that there's, they're quite an academic lot, the, Port- the Portuguese. And if you spend time in Porto or Gaia, um, you know, you'll find six or seven really interesting little art galleries or, or uh, museum retrospectives. There was a giant Frida Kahlo exhibition on the last time I was there. And, and then you've got Lisbon, which is, although the capital is very much not like Porto. Um, Porto and Lisbon are absolutely like Manchester and London. There's a real fight between them. Mm. There's the north-south divide. <laughs> if you drink Superbock, you're from Porto. If you drink Sagres, you're from Lisbon, and never the twain shall meet. What? Uh, what are those two? So they're the, they're the two best-selling lagers in the country. If you drink, if you drink ah, Sagres, yeah, yeah. it'd be like drinking southern beer in Manchester. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's one of those um, things. And Lisbon is equally as fascinating as Porto, but it's a, it's, it feels like a totally different country. So it's very different. Mm. The, the one thing that they all, I think, the whole country unites itself over is how tough it was uh, during the 70s when they were under this dictatorial despotic rule which they had during the 70s. Um, that death squad was all terrifying. But now the country feels very open, very free, has a very welcoming... It feels almost like Croatia. It's beautiful, but very welcoming to tourism. Okay, yeah. And um, also, it's amazingly cheap. 
I don't want cheap for cheap sake. And I don't like the idea that we should be paying people more, but we're getting away with it. You know, it's not like Benidorm where you get a, a full English breakfast for three, <laughs> for three quid because no one benefits from that, not even the person that's eating it, right? <laughs> so, um, but, but you can go to Stubau and you can sit down half an hour on a golden beach half an hour south of the capital city and you can sit down at a really, really good little tabanco, a little different beef bistro, and you can have a starter, a platter of the local food, maybe some deep fried um, cuttlefish with some chips and a nice salad you get half a bottle of red or white wine with that you get coffee and dessert that's like nine euros all in oh my god and it's like nobody wants to rip anyone off in portugal everything's a fair price and that includes the wines the wines are great value well and i imagine as well we were you know we were talking episode before about madeira which is not unfortunately so affordable but Muscatel de Setelbal, yes. which you mentioned, right? An amazing fortified wine, where actually is affordable, right? Yeah, oh, unbelievably good value for money. I mean, if we were going to compare one to the other, I think they're both equally exciting regions in a weird way. Mm. So Stubal, it looks like Setubal, uh, but it, it started mm. off as Saint Hubal. <laughs> and, 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 ah. the, and the Portuguese love to squeeze words up so they, they've kicked out a couple of vowels they kicked some vowels and stuff so it's no not sant uval anymore it's now stubal okay well there you go i learned okay i'm yeah. saying it wrong then stubal and, and I, i've also discovered that if an s is at the end of a, of, a, of a word in portuguese it tends to be a shh but it's a soft s if it's at the beginning of a word mm-hmm. it begins to be a hard s so i still made the mistake so although it looks like setubal it's it's stubal stubal, 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 yeah. stubal. So, okay everyone repeat after <laughs> joe so, stubal and, and as i described okay. remember when we said we were talking about um Boa or buau being the right yes. spelling but i said actually in portugal o's are pronounced like u's so mm. boal is pronounced buau anyway so it's not moscatel de setubal it's muscatel de stubal of course oh, okay okay so, muscatel right yeah, so, so we've, we've got this we've now we're pronouncing it right now, got, now, <laughs> now, now we sound like a local we're not, now we need to back it up with a few facts okay so um <laughs> so Muscat, muscatel de stubal is um, a, a wine which um if it, I think it, once in the wine trade, I think, and I hope you agree with me, Janina, once you get infected with a love for fortified wines, they have a very mm. special place in my heart. And one of the reasons why I've been writing so much about fortified wines for Class magazine is that the one thing that fortified wines have in common, either through blending huge amounts of wines over a very large period of time, or maybe just consistent climate, is they are the most consistent wines in the world. You don't have to really check for what vintage yes. you're drinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think for that reason, they're the only wines you can rely on in cocktails. Because if the wine was different every time, you'd end up with a different cocktail. If you're going to go make a cocktail and you use ruby port oh, yeah, or yeah. sherry, you get a very, very consistent result. And, 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 the, and, and only those wines that are, have huge multiple interblendings really serve to be a, an ingredient in a, in, a, in, a, in a cocktail. So they're either fortified or they're sparkling. So it's the same with champagne. You know, a bottle of Merck tastes the same almost remarkably the same in any given year in any given country every bottle tastes almost identical and that's an incredible thing to achieve but they have achieved that with with big brand sparkling so, and i think that um that that's something that you know obviously that people put fizz in cocktails all the time anyway so so the um the the, the muscatel de stubal is a port no more no less it's made exactly the same way as the wines maduro valley which is by they get grapes 
they squish them, whether that's using their feet still, which they sometimes <laughs> still do, or they have a machine mm-hmm. that has like plastic feet on it that does it for you. Um, and, uh, not, as, not as sexy. No, not as sexy, but hilarious that they have machines rather than having a, some kind of super Star Trek, highly sophisticated solution to this whole thing. They just make robotic feet, which <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? So, um, so you get grapes. The grapes are put into a lagar or into a big, big stainless steel tank. Lagars tend to be made from mm-hmm. stone. Then they they squeeze the grapes from using your feet or whatever, which then macerates the colour into the white juice that's inside the grapes. Because, of course, let's all not forget that most red grapes have got white juice inside. Then yeah. the wine then ferments. The wine only mm-hmm. ferments to one degree alcohol between 24 to 48 hours. A port or a Muscatel de Stubau, or Madeira, after 24 hours, is 1% alcohol. The vast majority of what's left in that liquid is still sugar and fresh raw grapes. And it's at that point that the brandy gets added. So mm-hmm. in some ways, port, Madeira, although it has that extra kind of oxidation process, and Muscatel de Stubau aren't really wines at all. They're like, you know when you used to go into a shop and you go on holiday and go, I'll, I'll, t- I'll bring my mum back some kind of memento. And there's a jar which has like <laughs> prunes in armagnac, right? And you go home and go, here's prunes in armagnac. Well, port is like going, here, mum, here's grapes in vodka, which is kind of what it is. <laughs> it's kind of, it's, and I always think that, yeah. that there's, something, there's something very different when sherry is a wine which has been fortified. But we've got to remember that port, muscatel, stubo, madeira never, ever become a wine. Not really. They're just fortified yeah. fruit. And that's the reason why they take so flipping long to age, because they're preserved by the booze. And Muscatel de Stubau was invented by probably the most famous winemaker in the history of Portugal uh, back in the 1800s, a guy called José Maria de Fonseca. Uh, and his company, José de Maria Fonseca Successores, is the company that makes a lot of the basic wines around Portugal that everyone drinks on every day. There's even a great variety called Castelao Frances, which means... French castle, mm, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and Castelau Frances was called Il Perequita or the parrot or the parakeet because they had an estate called the estate of the parakeets and it was full of parakeets in the trees and that's where they found this grape variety. So the grape, the grape variety was originally called parakeet. But then well, look at you with all the history. And then, and then eventually now and lots of wines around Portugal use Castelau Frances in their blends, particularly in the Alentejo in the south which is kind of like the mm-hmm. south of France. Um, and Jose Maria de Fonseca both invented, if kind of invented, Castelar Frances, kind of isolated it and made it into a table wine, which is in everything in Portugal. Any cheap red wine has some in it. Uh, he also invented Muscatel de Stubel, where he said, I like port, but I really like Muscat. And Muscat is the only grape, you know this and I know this, but Muscat, Muscat is virtually the only grape variety that we eat fresh and also make wines out of. Yes. Hence why it also tastes grapey, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the only grape variety that tastes of grapes. But there are very many different clones of Muscat. There's Muscat Alexandria, and obviously there's Muscat Petit Gras, there's all these things. But it can be extraordinarily intoxicating, can't it? And I, mm-hmm. I think if you can if you judge the world's best wine by the biggest smile it puts on your face, then I would say <laughs> a 5% alcohol bottle of Moscato Dasty is very hard to beat. Oh, you drink God, that, and okay. it's like... you. You just you just think, yes. oh, that's so delicious, and nobody can nobody can deny it. You, they might go, oh well, I like drinking claret, thing, yeah, but you see people drinking. There are people that can drink a bottle of Bordeaux that costs them three hundred pounds at a restaurant and not crack a smile. I dare them not to crack a smile <laughs> with a glass of Moscato Dasty in front of them, or oh. a glass of Moscatel de Stubau, because it just reminds you of all these beautiful fruit flavors as a child, like raisins and sultanas. When it gets older, it has what the French call 
torrefaction, which is the smell of roasting coffee and dried figs mm. and all those wonderful smells and flavours and toffee and molasses and butterscotch and all those things. And the older it gets, the more less floral and the more chewy it gets. But muscatel, mush, sorry, muscatel de stubel. Is, yeah, come on, get it right. Yeah, exactly. Muscatel de stubel <laughs> is, is basically taking the port process, which is a reliable way of guaranteeing that wine keeps forever, literally. But they've been using just muscat as the great variety, muscatel. And mm. it's to die for. In 1811, when Jose Maria made it, he was the only person making it. About 25 years ago, he ended up being the only person still making it, apart from the Bacalaur estates down the road. But it nearly became extinct. Who were doing great versions. Yeah. Oh, okay. And it was, yeah, and it nearly became completely extinct. We've now got a lovely handful of growers. I reckon there's probably about 25 growers in Stubal. Some of them are young very very talented female winemakers and some of them are old families that are doing it and um i'm going with my wife to stubal in a couple of weeks to go and taste do a little tasting of some of the ones i don't know and uh, i'll be bringing back and doing some master classes for the trade uh in september at the sit tastings so if anybody's in the trade they want to come and taste muscatel de stubal i'm going to be doing a master class on it on the 19th of september in Manchester and on the 21st of September in London. Very exciting. And, and, and hopefully we'll have wines from five years old to possibly even 100 years old. Yeah, because oh, there are like, some great age styles yes, out there, are. aren't it's they? Fantastic. And then they age them in wood and they don't filter them. And then, of course, they get more dried fruits and nuts and spice and figs and all, all of that. The, the first time I got excited about Stubal and think, I must know what this tastes like. I read an article in Wine Magazine back in the day by the lovely mm. Simon Woods, who writes very well. And he's a very talented wine guy up in Manchester. And um, he said he went to a tasting of Stubals, not knowing what they'd be like, but having the same intrigue that I did. I love port. I love Madeira. I love sherry. Surely I'm going to like Moscatel de Stubal. I'm going to go and check it out. <laughs> so he went along and he said there was 20 wines in the tasting. And he got to like wine six. And he's like, I've scored this 97 out of 100. And every wine is getting a higher score. He said he didn't know where to go because he didn't know what to expect. He said by the end of the tasting, he was scoring wines 136 out of 100. Because, oh my God. <laughs> because, because 100 wasn't a good enough parameter. He didn't expect it to be that good. And when they get old, they become genuinely sublime. Some of the most special wine you can possibly drink. And uh, they don't cost crazy money. You can buy a, a 20-year-old Muscatel de Stubal from Jose Maria, where, of course, uh-huh. if it says it's 20 years old, that's the youngest cherry, the youngest drink in there. So some of the drinking there's 80 years old. And a half litre will cost you somewhere in the region of £20. And I don't think there's a cheaper, mm. fine wine on earth than that. They're amazing wines. And they're lovely with the local food. You're selling it to me. You are selling it to me. Now, I want to touch on one more region. Okay. If you may. Yeah, of course. Which is Barada. Ah, Barada. Okay, Barada. Which... I've always had a soft spot for Luis Pato wines yeah, and now his daughter, Filippo yeah, Pato, yeah. who definitely are just people that, you know, everyone, you need to go check out this. Yeah, wines. and they're incredible people to be around. They just have this amazing joie de vivre mm. and belief in what they're doing and self-belief. And Filippo uh, Pato is, is making some of the most exciting wines in North Portugal right now. He, I, I love her fizz, particularly. It's made from Maria Gomish and Barada. It's made from Barga, actually. She makes, she makes us fizz out of Barga. Well, that's what I find fascinating, yeah. the grapes that they're using. But yeah, carry on. So, so Barada, is a, uh, for, for those people listening, is a, is a region which is just south of Gaia and Porto on the map. So it's kind of like two-thirds down the coast of Portugal. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just a little bit inland, just south of where the Douro Valley would be. Uh, but it actually hits the coast. So the region... 
sort of just literally just south of the city of Porto and, and Gaia, which are kind of together on the sort of mouth of the river, to to about sort of thirty miles in is Banana, and then it becomes Dao, which is south of actually the Sima Corgo in, in the in the Dura Valley itself. So you've got mm-hmm. you've got these kind of three regions, which I think, with the exception of Vinha Verde, are seen as the three uh, grand regions of winemaking, certainly for red wines in, in Portugal. So you've got the Douro Valley, you've got the Barada, and you've got down. But Barada was nothing until Louis Partu got on his soapbox and started to tell everyone how good it could be. People didn't really mm-hmm. believe him. And also the difficulty was then was he didn't have, it wasn't very easy to get backing because there's something like, I believe there's 2,200 growers in Barada, but there's only, oh, wow. but there's only 1,200 hectares. So on average, there's less than half a hectare per grower. So most of the people were making the wine their own way. They weren't going to listen to anyone else. I'm going to do it the same way my father did. My my mum never complained about the quality of wine we make. And if it goes vinegary, we use it in our dressing and salads. So it was really hard to get people to get together and go, Verona could be something really special because the size of the small holding was so tiny. And um, mm. uh, Luis Partu said, look, well, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. And started buying up small plots, till about 15 acres, and started making his wines. And people just stopped dead. All over the world, out of nowhere, he'd come out of these wines. And then people go, this is brilliant. They were talking about it being Barcavella good, which was the one great red wine in Portugal at the time. Yeah. And um, and, and those parties' wines are now going for £30, and they feel every penny worth 30 quid. They're just incredible wines. They age. And they're made from a great variety, which <laughs> is called Bugger, which is not necessarily <laughs> a good uh, start. Uh, do you actually, do you pronounce it Bugger, they not call, Bagger? They call it Bagger. Well, they Bagger, but it's very hard to tell whether they're saying Bugger or Bagger <laughs> in Portugal. But, but, it, <laughs> but it is B-A-G-A. And, and Bagger, Bagger is the yeah. red grape variety, which has very fierce tannin. But it's really weird. In the same way that chilies can be hot, but not sustainably hot. Some chilies, you can eat them. But you eat the chilli and it's like, oh, oh, and then it's not hot anymore. I mean, it just goes very quickly. And then you've got some which are just slow burners that just kill you after about three minutes, like a naga or something. <laughs> and, and the thing about naga is it has a tannic structure, which is very firm and very hard. But somehow it's still very, very quaffable. You drink it, it's tough and it's dry and it's chewy. And then you, you want to go straight back in again. It's almost like it's moorish. You know, it's too, it's yeah, too, yeah, yeah. it's toothsome. It's got a, a crunchy elderberry quality about it, which I think makes it very, very kind of toothsome and, and, and addictive. And and he makes very fine wine in wood over it. He still makes very cheap wines and the basic wines as well, the Beaujolais style. Because of course, by making wines the way they make them in Beaujolais, where you're not actually pressing the grapes at all, you get much, much softer mm. tannins. And so there's that and his daughter has taken that baton and run with it and she's making amazing rosés she's making sparkly wine still from Baga still celebrating Baga as the great variety of the region there are a few others but most of the varieties around that region they kind of cross over from each other you've got Alfa Shiro Jayenne they're all grown in the Dara as well um, but I think that Barada um, what's wonderful about it is it's parochial small small holding cottagey feel but actually there's some serious class there as well. And uh, five or six mm. small co-ops have grown where they've had two or 300 growers get together and they make sparkling. They make both rosé sparkling and white sparkling. The white sparkling is either made from Barga or a great variety called Maria Gomesh. Oh, yes, I, yeah. yes, also known as Fernal Pires. And I love the Absolute, aromatics on that. Absolutely. Variety, yeah. Maria Gomesh is the mm. same as Fernal Pires. Absolutely. And it's a great variety which makes terrific fizz and very good brandy. 
as well, really good brandy. It's kind of like Tremiana. Ah. If you think about it, it's not dissimilar to Uni Blanc, if you think about it. It's um, a very, very exciting time. I, whenever I go into Atasinius, which is the fishing quarter of Porto, and you go into a shop in the supermarket, there'll be a, a chiller cabinet full of fizz, and you pick any of them, they'll say, this has been aged for two years in the bottle. It's um, a pink sparkling Barada from the local co-op. And I pour myself a glass and go, that's lip-smackingly delicious. It's every bit as good <laughs> as, as a creme de Loire rosé or something. And you look at the price, yeah. and they're four euros. I mean, <laughs> if you really want to ask me where the best value sparkling wine in the world is, Baradas. Ah, Baradas in my top three. Yeah, mm. uh, Baradas up there with the, for me with the Loire and Blanquette for world's best value sparklings. Wow. I'm, I'm a massive fan, and uh, the problem is that we have a very congested sparkling wine market in this country. Of course, and the only reason why we don't have them out here is they just can't compete, even though they're incredibly cheap. People don't the the Portuguese penny didn't quite drop far enough yet, but I can see one day those wines being in every supermarket, every high street retailer because they're really terrific, really for money. Okay, there we go. I think that's a nice way to to end the education lesson. Yeah. Now I want to finish with something quite impressive oh, for everyone because I mean you've done a million <laughs> things everywhere in every country, and you used to co-present great wine walks, yeah. and then you told me that you shot a hole into <laughs> the wall of a winery with a rifle. Was that on one of your not-so-great wine walks? Was I sober? No. Was I holding a loaded right rifle? Yes. That's incredibly <laughs> irresponsible. Was that also okay. the same? This is how it happens. Okay. What's funnier about this is I'll tell you what happens when the story Chinese whispered in it up to the FT, because my brother rang me up and said, mm. is this you? And there's an article in the FT which just basically exaggerated everything that happens. And apparently I went on a machine gun spree with an AK-47. But it's, <laughs> what happened was this. <laughs> I was on a trip with my dear friend Chris Orr, who used to be the editor and then assistant editor of Decanter magazine and wine magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, then became managing director of quintessentially wines and so forth. Anyway, we were on a trip. Uh, one of the great, great privileges of our industry is we get invited to go into Cape Wine. Cape Wine's happening this year, but it's a trip to Cape Town where um, the country spends a considerable amount of money on virtually every wine export market and get invites journalists and buyers over to Cape Town. It used to happen every year, then it was every other year, now it's every three years. But I was at Cape Wine, I believe it was 2008, I think probably, uh, and we went to one of the most beautiful and picturesque and competent wineries in the whole of South Africa, and it's a good five-hour drive out of Cape Town. And it's a place right mm-hmm. up the coast going towards Namibia called Cedarburg. And mm-hmm. Cedarburg are specialists in Chenin Blanc and Shiraz, and they make very, very good mm-hmm. wines. North of the Tulbach Mountains, you drive all the way through the very fashionable Svartland that's up on the left-hand side. But you come off a track, and then you're on a dirt track in the back of a bucky with a crate of warm lager for about four hours until you get to this place in the middle of nowhere, which has a campsite, a beautiful place for, for people to go on holiday. That's a big staycation site for people in Cape Town. But also they have these vineyards, which are just drop-dead gorgeous. They're, they have big, tall, pink rocks that have been wind-eroded away, so they look like Lot's wife, like, like humans preserved in rock, just standing there still in the middle of the vineyard. It's extraordinary. Bright, bright blue mm. skies, bright red rocks. It feels like a, the front of an NXS album cover or something. And it's like kind of really amazing visuals. And these vineyards are really special and some of them are very elevated they also make very good South African Sauvignon Blanc 
but those vineyards are right down in the south. But David Nivut, who's the head winemaker of Cedarburg, is one of the greats. Anyway, he set up a tasting to taste all his new top wines, and they've just taken the step up from going from having very, very good premium wines to having a range of wines around the £20 mark, which mm-hmm. was seen to be very bold at the time because um, the South African exchange rate was very weak, and then they said, you know, the last thing we need is posh wine. And so, well, no, we need, to, we need the world to spend more money on our wine. So they brought out this range of Cabernets and Shirazes. Uh, I'm in the back of the truck. I'd spent four days basically on the source with my dear friend, um, uh, Chris Hall, and I was tired. Um, I was dehydrated, so I was getting a bit giddy. Um, and I, all I wanted was some water. There was no water at the tasting table. I, was going, oh. I thought, oh, I, need, I need to go to the loo anyway. So I got up and I was I staggered. I, still, I felt really dizzy. I thought, oh my God, I'm really quite drunk. Uh, and I remember Chris all giggling, going, oh, be careful, take care of yourself. And I walked into their wonderful house. And it's one of those Cape Dutch houses. It was built in 1690, maybe. The walls are two, oh, feet, wow. two feet thick, but an old stone house. And I walk up to the, to the lavatory door and I shake the door. And outside, I can see all the staff from the house preparing this huge bribe for us, this big barbecue. And um, I knock on the door and there's a chap inside. There's a chap called Patrick Schmidt, who is the editor. Of course, Patrick yes. Schmidt, by the way, of Drinks Business, who I've known for many, many years. And um, he said, no, I'm sorry, it's going to be a while. And I said, oh, dear. And, um, and I see this gun safe <laughs> in the corner of the room. Wow, that is a beautiful gun safe. And I tried the big bar on the front. Choo, choo. No, it's nicely locked. I tried the, the three <laughs> dials on it. That's got... Oh, down the side, there's a gun. And I pick up the gun. And now, I don't need to go into a lot of details, but I know quite a lot about arms. I was also in the Royal Air Force International Pistol Shooting Team. Oh, right. Okay. So I know, I know guns in a way that most people in this country don't. I'm not proud about it, but it's stuff a lot that I learned when I was in the forces. So I pick up this gun. Mm. I, I really recognise it as a side bolt action 2-2 Mauser. Very, very nice little gun. Probably for use for shooting hares, wolf, things like that. And it was probably there just in case some stray dogs came in or something like that into the house because they can be quite dangerous. There's a lot of rabies in South Africa. So I look, I look at the gun and it's leaning against the gun safe. Well, it's out of the gun safe, then it's probably not armed. It's probably not going to put it in. So I look in the gun and I pull back the bolt. I look inside and I put my thumb inside to check if there's any bullets. Can't feel any bullets in there. I'm looking in this sort of fairly sort of twilight dark and I can't see any rounds. So I close the bolt. And I aim at a, a wall, which is what your standard protocol, uh, very narrowly missing um, a, a first edition of Mrs. Beaton's book on housekeeping. Um, and, and I just pulled the trigger. And what I didn't know was there were tracer rounds in the, car, in, the in the magazine, which are black, so I couldn't see them. And um, oh. so I actually chambered. The gun was actually safe, locked off with no bullets in the, in the chamber. By opening it and then shutting it again, I... I chamber around and I pointed at the wall and I go bang <laughs> and I see in front of me this massive cloud of dust the smell of cordite and this like spider cracks away from this hole in the, in the wall which is about sort of like two, oh. two or three centimetres deep I've never seen Patrick Schmidt move so fast in a while the door opens oh out comes this guy rapidly doing up straps oh my god what have you done oh my god you shot a hole in the wall and it went bananas and I said yeah oh. but at least I did it safely my bad. Oh, my God. Can you imagine if someone... Oh, my Dad God. said if you hadn't taken so long on the toilet, this would not have happened. <laughs> it's his fault, of course. Then I went outside and I sat down. And I sat down to Chris Hall and I said, Chris, what is it? I've just picked up a gun, loaded it, and shot a hole in the wall. David's going to be furious because David was giving the talk. And Chris Hall couldn't help himself. He's drunk. He stood up, burst laughter and said, hey, David, Joseph shot a hole in your wall. 
And Joe said, what? Oh and then Dammit burst into laughter. Everyone stunned silence. Jan- the look on Jancis Robinson's face was quite exciting. Well, that uh, changes up a wine trip. Yeah, so that, that shakes things up a bit. Jancis suddenly woke up and there was Tim Atkin and a few other people. And uh, then we run inside and see the, the hole in the wall, the, the cracks in the wall. And I said, look, I chambered around. I didn't know the trace around. I shot it against the wall just because it was a safe safe shot to take. He said, well, you know, good gun protocol, Joe, but what about my wall? <laughs> and I said, I don't know what you're going to do with the wall. Anyway, this made so much news. I got a case of wine from David at Christmas. It said, there's no such thing as bad press, is there, Joe? <laughs> we sent out 120 samples since your shenanigans. Thank you very much. And he sent me a box of wine and a pot of polyfiller in a bow. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And if you go, if you go to Cedarburg Estate now, there's a frame on the wall. And he's built a frame around the crack. And people go up to him and go, oh, my God, that looks so realistic. And he goes, You're like, oh, and he goes, um, it is real. Twiddle thumbs. Because the frame, it looks like a painting of a shot in the wall. And everyone thinks it's fake until they touch it and realise there's actually a hole in the wall. And the frame's fake. That is hilarious. And so that's the story of Joe Wadsack shooting a Mauser 2-2, which then became shooting Joe an AK-47 in the FT. Wow. Okay. Right. Well, listen, I think that, you know, we need to put this out to our listeners and say... Do you guys want to hear more of Joe's stories <laughs> in the future? Well, I've got so many because more. Because I think there's a lot. Yeah, yeah exactly. So many. Oh, well, Janina, it's an absolute privilege for you to ask me to be on your podcast. You've been doing an amazing oh. job. I've listened to a few of them, and I think they're wonderfully educational. And you've had some very cool people on here. Um, oh, and now, and now we've had you on, haven't we? Well, you know, really? I'll, I'll come back if you want me to. I'd be delighted to. We'll have to ask everyone if they want you back. Won't yeah, we? yeah. And if they want yeah. to hear more from you, right? Yeah. That you're doing your series on YouTube right tell them where they need to go I literally just started it again it's been it's been out of action for about four months and it's been my baby but if you go to YouTube please come and subscribe I would love to have some more subscribers it'd be nice to have over a thousand anyway but I have a very high quality of subscribers it's great the the whole trade seems to be watching Joe messing around in his front room (laughs) if you go to YouTube and put in the Drinks Coach UK during lockdown, I managed to knock out 151 episodes. And the episodes oh, the episodes aren't just about wine. There are some that are devoted to Pacific spirits. We've got some on tequila, some on straight rye, some on bourbons. Um, there's some on, on how to make certain cocktails. Hopefully, it's a lot of fun content. And the content is just me. It's like an alcohol Tourette's, me just shouting at the camera about, about, about various <laughs> aspects. Some bits very educational. I think if you go to some of the things I really i am in love with, things like the wines of Lebanon, the wines of Portugal, Sherry, Sicily, for example, Greece. I've done a real deep dive for those people who want to do a studying for, for exams and you want to know more about Greek wine. I've done three specials last year. And people were very kind and donated some very high quality samples for me to discuss. Uh, and my wife draws these lovely maps, which I hold up to the camera because I like the I love the whole low finest and all that. Um, <laughs> who doesn't love a wine map? I, know, I know we need uh, wine maps because, oh my God, there's enough wine regions. Exactly, exactly. So the Drinks Cage UK, um, if you want to, Follow me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Vinesack, V-I-N-E-S-A-C-K, all lowercase. Uh, again, it'd be lovely to see you there. And uh, Drinks Coach UK is starting up. I'm editing my first show of what I'm going to now call Series 2 <laughs> this evening, actually. So it should go up for tomorrow night. When you hear this podcast, if you'd like to look for episode 153 will be the first new one, I think. But, but have a look through. I mean, I'm sure there's stuff there that will make you at least chuckle a little bit. 
Um, it's got to be one episode uh, for everyone. Yeah, and, there's, and it's full of anecdotes as well. There's, these kind of stories turn <laughs> up in every, every episode. What's coming up soon? I'm doing one on some very nice dried German Rieslings. I've got uh, a towel. I've done a tasting on, uh, I think, the Wine Society sent me a box of very nice Portuguese wine. So I'm going to do that into a show. Oh, I've got a box. Yeah. I've got a box of Wine Society too. Fantastic. I need to look in it. Well, got, we might have the same. You, that has the Sualiero Vinius Fellish in it, which is to die for Albarino. It's the most delicious Albarino. Oh, my God. Um, and uh, I've got another box, I think, from Italy. Oh, yes, I'm going to do a tasting of some quite nice Bordeaux. Mm. I noticed in my cupboard, I've had four different 2018 Bordeaux sent to me. One's a Fronsac, two are Saint-Emilion Grand Cruz, and one of them's a second-growth Pouillac. I think it's time for you to do an episode on that. Yeah, that should be a fun one. And if I do them quickly, I can have them in my barbecue at the weekend. Perfect. There you go. Joe. thanks so much. Thank you, Janina. Just sharing a little bit. My God, you are a fountain of knowledge. So it's awesome that I didn't have to really say anything. It's a real thanks pleasure. Thanks for making it easy for me. Okay, my love. Although it won't be easy editing this, but... Oh, no, 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 no. I'm so sorry. I do try and shut up, but I can't. I just can't do it. It's fine. They won't notice. I'm going to cut out half of it. <laughs> Joe, you're amazing. Cheers. Cheers, love. I'll see you and soon, Miss Doyle. Take care, love. Yeah, take care. Thanks for bye. Well, uh, after that story, I don't really think I can finish off with much more than my wine quote. And as I felt that this episode was certainly about wine regions that you need to discover, this quote is from Leonardo da Vinci. And he said, The discovery of a good wine is increasingly better for mankind than the discovery of a new star. Well, talking about discoveries and mankind, next week I have Dr. Jamie Good on the podcast and he has released the third edition of Wine Science, the application of science in wine from vine to glass. Now, the third edition has come out because there's so much more technology, so much more understanding of yeasts and bacterias used in fermentation, sulfur dioxide dioxide, microbes. But I promise you, these episodes are going to be wine geeky without going too far. So you can follow along and learn some amazing, new, exciting wine facts. So join us next week. You know what to do if you haven't subscribed already. Make sure you like the podcast and please, I will be so grateful if you can leave some stars and some comments as it makes the podcast more discoverable. And if you're listening on your mobile, screen Screenshot your phone and post that across social media for me. Share the wine love. Right, I raise my glass to you all. Until next week, cheers to you.